Powerful Word of God can heal lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul, restore people to complete health. Here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, would you speak to me? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, awesome. Give them a, give your neighbor a high five or a pound. If you're really into it, reach over there and hug them, okay? <clears throat> Not much hugging going on. Come on, we need some more hugging going on. <clears throat> I don't see any hugging going on. This side not hugging much. This side, they're lathered up over here, but how about this side? Brother Ken, did you get a hug back there? a boy, there you go. All right, well, make sure. He looked lonely back there, Mary. I wasn't sure. He's, maybe he's going to sleep on me. <laughs> Scott's not up here, bless his heart. <laughs> and Red, boy, you're making a good pillow there this morning, brother. Look at there. That go Colts, yes. Uh, they <clears throat> they needed to go somewhere, but uh, praise God. It'll be it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, we'll see. Oh, yeah. By the way, we're we're done. Let's pray. Uh, no, <laughs> I've already had three or four say. You know, the Cowboys are starting at noon. I said, so what? They're not any good till the fourth quarter. So just relax. Oh, uh, well, we're here to serve the Lord today, aren't we? <laughs> Whoa, do you remember when you were a kid how certain kids got nicknames that you, you remembered them by? I was reading an article this week and ran across a few that just blew me away. For instance, a first grader whose name was Sticky Lips McGee. Because they ate glue all the time in the first grade. In second grade, Tommy the Nose Picker Turner. <laughs> Third grade, this was a little girl, Bucky the Beaver Banfield. She had them big old teeth in the front. So I thought, well, it wouldn't be fair to pick on people I don't know. This needs to be more personal, so I'll throw mine in. In the fourth grade, I got, I got the nickname Old Weird Harold. Thank you, Bill Cosby. Old Weird Harold. He was six foot five and 20 pounds. They used him to get the football out of the sewer. Well, it didn't fit me, but the name Harold did, so I got that the rest of my growing up years. Hey, here's Old Weird Harold. My brother was the worst of all. But wouldn't it be sad if the things that we were called growing up, those nicknames we received, really defined who we were? It'd be sad if that happened. We often try to sum up and define a person based on a single moment in their life. And sometimes you can. Sometimes you can, but most of the time you can't. Because when that happens, the richness of that person can be lost. And the true meaning of their life forgotten. So it is with Jesus. A name that everyone knows. Ask Brit Hume. <laughs> Brit Hume mentioned that Tiger Woods could find complete recovery and restoration if he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. I was sitting there listening to that going, this is a TV commentator. 
a TV reporter, a TV uh, announcer, a TV man. And he's telling Tiger Woods, leave Buddhism and come to Christianity. That's what he said. I'm going, that'll work. Wow, did he get lambasted for saying that. Everyone attacked him for being this wild-eyed, fanatic, right-wing extremist terrorist. Because he mentioned the name Jesus. Isn't it amazing that what that name does to people? I mean, if you're at a party and you're at you're having a great time and, and everybody's kind of being themselves and somebody comes in and mentions the name Jesus, changes the whole tenor of the group, doesn't it? You know, I've told you when I'm out with you, and I don't mind if you introduce me as your preacher, that's okay, but, but don't do it right up front. Let's get the conversation going a little bit because, you know, everything changes when they find out you're the preacher. Oh, man, they have Sunday school buttons. I mean, to tell you, they won hundreds to Jesus. You know, you hear about all the service, all the ministry. Come on. Five minutes before that, you weren't even going to church anywhere. So, you know what I'm saying? Jesus, boy, he brings out a lot. And people know that name. But do do they really know him? They know about him. He's that guy that, that came and died on the cross. And that seems to be the most significant part of his life that we know and remember and we talk about. If you say, who's Jesus? Oh, he's the guy that died on the cross. But there's something even better that I want us to catch this morning. Jesus' death is important, but it's not the whole story. Last week we talked about how every story has a villain. And the antagonist of our story isn't a person as much as it's a problem. It's a pattern of evil that's been introduced into our world. And what was that villain's name? Do you remember from last week? Sin. Sin is the villain that's been introduced into our culture. Sin has hijacked the original concept of creation and has kidnapped and murdered and is the terrorist in our story, the story of everything. Today, the plot thickens. We've all heard about Jesus. He's that guy that died on the cross. And for many of us, that's become the most defining defining event that's attached to His name. But it's not the whole story. Much more. More than miracles that He did. More than just being a good teacher. Jesus' story began long before He was ever born of a virgin. And it doesn't conclude with that death on the cross. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And you have to be careful because certain belief systems have changed that verse. One of those belief systems says it this way, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Little, little bitty, little bitty word, A. But you see the whole change of structure? 
It's not that Jesus was God. It's that he was a God. So in other words, there could be other ones, right? Of which that, that faith group goes on to teach that you, you are the God in and of yourself. So you have to be very careful of the subtlety of these changes. Jesus said it this way in Revelation 22. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. The story of Jesus spans a lot more than what we see from Genesis to Revelation. Those 66 books of the Bible, the 1189 chapters in the Bible, the tons of verses. Jesus' story began long before Scripture was ever written. And it will go on past its conclusion. So with so much information about him, with so huge a story, where do we begin to unpack the story of Jesus? I'm so glad you asked that question. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, seven verses that unpack Jesus and teach us who he is. The whole story is found in these seven verses. If you have that in your Bible, turn your Bible there to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in, in verse, or go through verses 5 through 11. But in seven verses, this whole story is going to be broken down. And it's broken down into three parts. And so I want to go dig into those right quick. Number one, part number one is found in Philippians 2, 6, and 7. And let's read that together. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Come on, Jeff, verse 7. What? Technology is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Preacher ought to look those over before he starts to preach them. Is there more in verse 7? What is it? Very good. Thank you. So he, he emptied himself. That's the phrase there. And became a servant of man. It's kind of an interesting structure. But the part one is, who is Jesus? He was... And is the incarnation. I've always wondered, what is that? Is that a thing you put on your lapel? An incarnation? What is that? When I was in Bible college, I, I was very illiterate in the Bible. I'm not so sure I'm much more now. But then I really was because when the, when the professor would talk about Job, I thought he said Job. Psalms was palms. And when he said Habakkuk, I thought he was cussing me out in Hebrew. I wasn't sure. But this idea of incarnation, I really didn't understand that. I do now because that's the beginning of the story. John 1, 1, we just we talked about that. Jesus has always existed, always been with God, always been God. And now it says in this verse that he has made himself nothing or another translation says he's emptied himself. You ever worked a project so hard that you felt completely spent? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you've got nothing else to give. Mothers are like this every day. Yeah, they give, they give, they give, they work, they work, they do, they do, they do. And then the old boy shows up after his work wanting her to tend to him. Ladies, am I hitting home at all? 
Come on now. There ought to be more than just one amen out there. Yeah. But men, you know what I'm talking about. You work and work and work, and then you get home, and you would like some peace and quiet. And what do you get? 29 kids run up to you. You only got two, but 29 of them show up at your house. Yeah. And if they're under the age of 10, they're more fun. And if they're a bunch of girls, it's unbelievable. And they want time. They want your energy. They want, and you don't want anything. And then your wife comes and what does she do? Oh, she rubs your shoulders. She brings you a cool drink because you look tired. She gets the heating pad out and puts it on your back because you need a little warmth. And yeah, starts to rub those shoulders. I've noticed when Cindy starts rubbing my shoulders, the rubbing gets a little harder every rub. Pretty soon she finds that one nerve up there and clamps down on it like an eagle's talon, you know. Ah, it paralyzes you for a brief moment. I said, what's that all about? You know, okay, you got me. That incarnation, he's always there, emptying yourself. Jesus, it says, emptied himself. He didn't look at what he was and what he had of any value. He left it to come and take on our nature, which tells us some things about him. First of all, Jesus is self-revealing. I love C.S. Lewis. He's one of the deeper thinkers that I read early on in my walk with God. He's not as deep as some, but I love to read what he, what he writes. He was living in the 20th century. He was one of the great minds of the 20th century. And he was living when the Soviet Union put Yuri Gagarin, the first man, into space. Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of the Soviet Union at the time and a very outspoken advocate of atheism, said this about Gregarian's visit to space. He said, this is uh, Khrushchev, we have been to the heavens and God was not there. We have been to the heavens and we didn't find him. That's what he's saying. To which C.S. Lewis wrote this in response to that statement. If there were a God you would not relate to like him, if there were a God you would not relate to him like someone on the first story would relate to someone on the second story. That if you went upstairs, you would find them. If there is a God, you would relate to him in a way Hamlet would relate to Shakespeare. Hamlet will not find Shakespeare by going backstage or looking up in the rafters. The only way Hamlet discovers anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. Is that not a great statement? That's why this story of Jesus is about more than his death. And that death for our sins. The incarnation is the story of God who has written Himself into the story because He wants to be known by us. Humanity throughout history has speculated and debated what God is really like. And perhaps more than anything else, that's what separates Christianity from every other religion. Because other religions deal with ceremony, with, with, with uh, doing things where Christianity deals strictly with a relationship. 
That's why God wants to be in relation with you. He wants to be. It doesn't surprise me that River wants to hold the hand of her fiance. It doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise me at all that Jerry Bruner wants to stay at the hospital next to Dwayne. When her health is worse than his. But she wants to be there. She don't want to leave his side. That's why yesterday when I couldn't get my wife to answer her cell phone, who I get raked over the coals for not answering my cell phone because I'm in, the, I'm in a ditch in a diabetic coma, which I hear all the time because I didn't answer my cell phone. She's sitting on the couch just having a... I'm telling you, I love that girl. You think I'm digging a deep hole, don't you? Well, then jump in here with me. Come on. I think I'll go back to preaching and let go of that stuff there. Because the bottom line is, she cares about me and wants to know where I'm at. And if I'm not answering the phone, she's concerned. Because diabetics, that's what. We can be driving down the road and all of a sudden, we're, we're done. Because if your blood sugar drops, you're not, you're not going to be with us much longer. So I understand her concern. But the thing that I love about her is that she puts herself in my life. What I love about this story of Jesus is that God himself put himself in our story. Kierkegaard, now we're going deep. Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, tells the story in such a way about how Jesus emptied himself. I just got, you got to listen to this. It's a parable of the king and the peasant. Once upon a time, there was a king that loved a humble maiden. She had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the court. She dressed in rags. She lived in a little shack. She led the ragged life of a peasant. But for reasons that no one could ever quite figure out, the king fell in love with this girl the way that kings sometimes do. Why he should love her is beyond explaining, but love her he did. Then there awoke in the heart of the king an anxious thought. How was he to reveal his love to this girl? His advisors, of course, would tell him to simply command her to be his queen. For he was a man of immense power and she would have no power to resist. But power, even unlimited power, cannot command love. He could force her body to be present in his palace. He could not force love for him to be present in her heart. He longed for intimacy of heart and oneness of spirit and all the power in the world cannot unlock the door to the human heart. It must be opened from the inside. His advisors might suggest that the king give up, his, give up this love, give his ear to a nobler woman, but this king would not do that. He, he could not do that. And so his love is also his pain. Finally, he considered showing her or showering her with gifts But in the end, how would he know, or she either for that matter, if she loved him for himself or for all that he gave her? Every other alternative came to nothing. There was only one way. So one day, the king rose, left his throne, removed his crown, and laid aside his royal robes. 
He took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed in rags, scratched out a living in the dirt, groveled for food, dwelt in a hovel. He did not just take on the outward appearance of a servant. It became his actual life, his nature, and his burden. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that he, that she could be united to him forever. It was the only way. I'm telling you, that's how God loves you and me. He loved us enough to come and to be a part of our lives, who we are and what we are. That's the story of incarnation. Motivated by immense love for people. The next part of the story is found in Philippians 2 and verse 8. And it's part 2. It's what Jesus did. Theologians call this atonement. And it's the part of the story that we're most familiar with because Jesus' death on the cross is mentioned here. It's found in verse 8. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Any of you ever see or hear about the movie Atonement, Oscar-winning movie Atonement? It's the story of a young girl who ruins her sister's and her sister's boyfriend's life by making false accusation, so much so that she can't take it back. And the whole movie is about how she spent her life trying to make up for what she did, to atone for it, but none of her efforts could ever make that happen. Atonement means to make things right. That's what atonement is. Jesus experienced, and how did He bring atonement to us? A couple of ways. He experienced a substitutionary death. He left His rights and luxuries and became a man just like us. You say, I can't, I can't overcome this habit, this temptation in my life. Jesus has felt that same temptation and habit. Ah, boy, He's just stronger than I am. But you have the capacity to stop. You have the capacity to change. But He was unlike us in one way. He never sinned. He never gave in. God atoned for our sins by substituting Jesus. He died in our place and rose from the dead. This may be those one of those truths that we've grown too familiar with over the years, but don't miss the power of it. John Stott, great Christian writer, puts it this way, Sin is man substituting himself for God, and atonement is God substituting himself for man. Jesus made right through His death what we are powerless to do. Jesus atoned for our sin by putting our sin to death in His body. I learned atonement when I was younger. Back in my teen, uh, about 10, 11, 12, right in there, at the, at the football stadium by our house, and we were within walking distance of that, we'd go every Friday night and watch the Mighty Coyotes play in Wichita Falls, Texas. 
At that time, they had, uh, you know, now they have a little box thing that you put your drinks in and carry them back. They had a, it was a flat cardboard piece with four holes in it. You stick the cups in there and carry the cardboard piece. But, man, what it was great because it was a flying instrument with no cups in it. It's like a Frisbee. You could take that thing. Man, it is. So after the game, all the kids would go out on the field because that's what kids do. You know, we're all in awe, in awe, uh, 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 awe of these players and all that stuff. Well, I happened to have one of those laying there on the ground, so I decided I'm going to sling that sucker. So I grabbed it, zoom, man, and I was watching it going zoom, 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 right in the back of the head of the biggest bully in the high school in Wichita Falls, Texas. He turned around, and I guess I had that look like, I just threw it. Because <laughs> he came on a dead beat to me and began to pummel me right there on the field. And about the, I don't know, I lost count after a hundred, no, I'm teasing, but after, after what seemed like a hundred hits across my head and my face and my body, I hear this voice, stop, huge, booming voice. And I looked up out of the one eye that was still available. I looked up and my brother had grabbed his arm and had thrown him five yards away. Now, I thought this bully was huge, but he really wasn't. I mean, he was a real, he was a runt, especially compared to my giant brother. Because my brother grabbed him and threw him over there. He got up and started pummeling my brother. Well, that didn't last very long. Pretty soon he crawled off and went on to end back into the sewer where he lived. I'm just teasing. It just makes the story sound better. But I never, through that one eye, never saw my brother in a better light. And how atoned I, he, he took he took the penalty for me because that guy beat him up or tried to. And I tell you, on the way home, well, he got his revenge because, <laughs> you know, brothers can do that. So, But I didn't care because he had saved me from death. I thought that guy was going to kill me. And, you know, in that silly story, in that little story, it's just this big compared to what Jesus did for you and me. When the pummeling began with sin, Jesus stepped in our place. And He took it upon Himself. He was experienced a substitutionary death, and then also Jesus made an unimaginable sacrifice. Now I want you to know something. I love you as a church. I love all of you. I am, however, not quite ready to die for you. Not quite. Now, if there were a bus barreling down on you, I had the chance to push you out of the way and save your life, I might do it. But I am going to warn you, don't test that theory. I love you, but I'm not ready to die for you. And I can guarantee you right now, I have three boys and now I have two daughter-in-laws and I have a granddaughter. I'm not going to give up any of them for you. Well, that's just, well, well, preacher. I'm sorry, I just probably won't do that. I don't think I will sacrifice my children for any of you. But I know somebody that did. I know somebody that did. Sacrificed their son for me. I was going to show you a video clip, but I can't even watch it myself. It's about a man that ran the switch station for the railroad. And going across 
a river, he would uh, switch the tracks open or closed depending on if a boat was coming or the train was coming. And his son that he loved was down one day playing among the gears of that train track area. And here come a train. It was a loaded train. It was a passenger train. And it had hundreds of people. And before he did not have time to get from his perch to his son who he saw in the gears before he had to trip the lever. So he had to make a split decision. Am I going to save my son or save all these people? And the story goes, he stepped back, lowered his head, and pulled the switch. I'm telling you, you've got to stop and realize what your Heavenly Father gave for you. It's an unimaginable sacrifice. Part one is about the incarnation. Part two is about atonement. And then in verses 9 through 11, part three, this is what Jesus will do. Who is he? What's he done? And here's what he will do. We pick it up at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. We just read these a while ago. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what is that all about? It's talking about the future of the story of Jesus. The part of the story that's still yet to be played out. You remember the uh, uh, our, our uh, governor in California played the uh, character Terminator. Remember how how would he say that? Oh, I'll be back. <laughs> Pretty sorry imitation. But you know what? That's the phrase that Jesus used when he left. He said, and the angel said, "As you see him going, you will see him come again." So Jesus is going to do two things yet that are unfinished. He will return and He will restore. He will return and He will restore. And I bet many of you believe, who understand the life of Jesus, that you tend to overlook these two things. They're what keep you going. They're what give you hope. That prize is still in sight. You haven't attained it yet. Paul said that, didn't he? Old guy. Wrote most of the New Testament. Pretty much a a guy that God looked to to get some things done for his kingdom, right? And what does he say at the end of life? He said, I find that I haven't attained it yet. I haven't reached it yet. I'm pressing on toward the upward call of God. Hey, so don't quit. Don't lay back. Don't hold back. How? Oh, get on the run. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I was trying to keep up with Corey and Megan yesterday afternoon. They'd be they'd be half a mile ahead of me and look back. Hey, Dad in here. Well, I'm coming. I'm coming. You know, that's all right. Because the main thing is I keep coming. You got to keep coming. Don't quit. Don't let life knock you down. Don't let don't let you don't don't let anything stop you or derail you or, or or cause you to quit. Jesus came and his he died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he went to heaven and he's waiting to come back. 
And He's going to come back and He's going to restore. And when He comes back to restore, He's not just going to restore. He's going to restore things the way they used to be. It's going to be perfect again. I cannot wait for my first perfect bowl of butter brickle ice cream. You know that I know that I know. I can't wait to where my left knee will bend completely instead of creaking and crackling with the arthritis that's stuck inside of my knee. I can't wait till I don't have to get up and check my blood sugar and take a certain amount of insulin so I can actually eat a meal. I just want to sit down and eat without all that. Yeah. I want to eat, I want to drink sweet tea made out of real sugar. Pepsi's got a throwback version now, right? What's the throwback? Made out of real sugar. Makes you wonder what they've been putting in those cans. I mean, there's all around us violence, destruction, suffering. I, I don't know about you, but it's been hard to watch some of the coverage in Haiti. The one that struck me early on was the guys trying to lift the partially part of that building off the bottom half of that man who was struggling to get out from under it. He was still alive, but the building's laying on top of him. I just, wow. Wow. The woman who was laying there crying and, and rolling around and her family was trying to comfort her and when the reporter found out what was going on, she had five children die in her, in her eyesight. The roof collapsed on those five children. She got out. I can't imagine, can you? I can't imagine a God who looked down from heaven and saw what he saw. The nails in his hand and the crown on his head and the whip marks on his back and the nails in his feet. That's why... At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, creation went haywire because the creator of the universe turned his back on it. He couldn't watch it anymore for a brief moment. My opinion, it's not written in the Bible, but that sure sounds like the God I know. But the great news is he turned back around. <laughs> The great news, he turned back around because on the third day when Satan thought he won, hmm, hmm. Matthew nineteen twenty eight, Jesus spoke of his return. He said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And the Greek word for renewal is the word polygonesia. Jesus' mission was to renew the earth, renew the political system, renew the social system, renew the economy, renew the human heart. Won't it be awesome? For all, I, I get so tired of listening to the world tell us how bad we are. Okay, Al-Qaeda, where's your support for Haiti? Okay, Bin Laden, where's your support for Haiti? We've already sent millions and billions and we're sending people, and we'll keep doing it. Why? Because that's the way we are. That's the way Christians do. Amen? We just keep doing it. Does our country need some help? Oh, don't, that's a whole different sermon. But there will never be another natural disaster. There will never be another war. There will never be another famine or an economic depression or any selfishness or hate when Jesus comes back.
fact, he says it this way in Revelation 21.4. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. Worship team's going to come help me close. I have to admit, I've at times in my walk with God have missed this point. I get too self-centered. I get too self-focused. I pucker my lip out and I pout about how I need this or don't have that. Oh, God, where are you? You remember how the cries on 2001 and September 11th, where was God in, 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 when the Twin Towers were attacked? I love what one commentator said. Well, why should he help us? We've kicked him out of everything else. Boy, so true. So when you think about your walk and your, and your life and the calamities that are coming in your life, and boy, sometimes they come and you think, I don't think I can take another day. Well, I just want to ask you one thing. Who moved? Who changed addresses? You think God moved? No, you did. We do. Because we start handling stuff on our own. This story of Jesus, we're told how to do it in Philippians 2 and verse 5. Verse 5, it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Father, I ask you this morning. The best is yet to come, Lord. There's days when we feel the joy of Your Spirit in us. There are days when we struggle, but the bottom line, God, is that You are here and You are with us, but there's going to be something greater is yet to come because You are going to come and restore the perfection that none of us have ever experienced. We must have this attitude that Jesus had, that we must empty ourselves for You. And give that to You. All of us who are united with Christ make up His body here on earth. We are His functional beings on this planet. His return is taking place through us. His restoration is happening through us. We are key workers in this great restoration project. Every time we show people the love of God, we are restoring them. Every time we do what's right, we're bringing renewal. Every time we navigate somebody to God, the world comes closer to what God created it to be. Oh, Father, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The renewal of all things pulsates through us and explodes throughout the world that we live in because Your people live the way You've called us and have that attitude, that same attitude that Jesus had. Father, come quickly. Come quickly. I, I know, Lord, there's somebody in this room today 
that just needs a special touch from your spirit. God, it may not be some knock them on the floor, back in their chair experience. It may just simply a release, a unbinding. But whatever it is, God, you've got the power to do it, and I pray that they will have the courage to let you do it. Because, Father, at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, healing can come. Restoration can be experienced. Fullness, fullness can be gained. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a decision to make, let's make it as we stand and sing this morning. I'm giving you my heart. It's all that is within. I lay it all.